Chapter 9 Dreaming of Canadals In the small cluttered room that was now his office, Herman sat at a wobbly desk and chair across from Klaus, and he ate the cold pickled sausages Marta had brought him. Utopin said, as these fist-sized sausages are called in Czech, were Herman's favorite food and remained so all his life. Like with his love of Smetna's Viltava, they were an inseparable part of how I remember him. But they were also far from kosher, so my grandmother wanted nothing to do with them. He had to make them himself in the basement of our house, and he had to eat them there, too. Sometimes I'd watch. I'd sit on the floor and watch him carefully measure and prepare everything. He always had such excitement in his eyes the kind that's usually reserved for a small child, though I don't think it was the food that excited him as much as it was his ability to enjoy it. What I'm certain of is that it was because of my grandfather's experiences in Theresienstadt that my family placed such a value on food. Not only was it never wasted in our house, but meals were always a source of celebration, they were a kind of miracle that we never took for granted, which is why I can remember the most mundane of them. The most memorable of these included my grandmother's canadals. According to the dictionary, canadal is the Yiddish word for matzo ball, but the canadals of my youth only had a passing resemblance to any matzo balls I'd later experience. The latter were never anything special, Bland and lifeless dumplings, whether they were in a bowl of chicken soup or not, mattered little. But canadals were something else. Their rich taste was both unique and comforting. They warmed you everywhere at once and were the best part of the meal by far, which is why in my house they were always the main attraction. It would take my grandmother days to make them, using a recipe that had been passed down to her through countless generations. First, she would make chicken soup from scratch. Then she'd patiently wait for the fat to rise and gel. This would be the key ingredient in what I could only dream about on that cold and rainy desert night and on many like it. Though food was only a part of what made our meals so special, both my grandparents would cook and watching them was like watching a magic show, which I would enjoy even through the increasing bitterness I felt as a teenager. As my grandparents glided through the kitchen like characters in a ballet, they would toss plates and ingredients to each other. They would even sing. I couldn't help get excited from all their excitement. Unfortunately, Herman's meal at SS headquarters wasn't quite as exciting. Having been systematically starved for eight months, Herman thought he would devour the meal in seconds and still be hungry for more. But this didn't happen. He was full even after one sausage and thoroughly stuffed after two, and this angered him. He felt cheated by his own stomach, which wasn't accustomed to eating such quantities of food, much less good food. Still, even with his lack of appetite, Herman enjoyed the meal. He especially enjoyed the smells rising from the plate, which brought back his own recollections of meals past. 
like with my grandmother and her canadals, Anna would spend days preparing utopense using her own special recipe, which was adapted from all the years she had spent making them for Herman. Often he would catch her in her flowered apron, sneaking something else into the big pickle jar by the kitchen window, whether it was peppers or onions or things he couldn't even recognize. This would only cause his anticipation of them to rise until he finally had the opportunity to enjoy them. But while he would tell me again and again that Anna's Utopin said were the best he ever had, it wasn't the taste he loved the most. This was only a small part of what they meant. Even though he never put it into words, I know what really mattered was how he could taste her love for him in every bite. Despite their coldness, the sausages generated a warmth that never ceased to marvel him. Because of this, and because of all the other things Anna would do for him, Herman would often try to show his appreciation of her by buying her white roses and taking her to the Lucerna on Saturday nights, where they would dance until they could barely walk. He even wrote a verse in two languages, which he said was bad, but always put a smile on her face. Though all this diminished as the years went on, and he became more immersed in his police work, until it hardly happened at all. So he wondered right then whether she had known just how he felt about her, and how he valued everything about her, and the time they had spent together. While trying to think about anything other than this, Herman refilled his empty glass with the Velko Popovitsky Kozel beer from the flower vase, which was a mix of dark and pale beers. Chesonne, as Czechs call it, meaning cut. He afterward took a long and slow sip of it, enjoying every moment of its journey through him, despite its weakness, at least by Czech standards. They grade beer, not by its alcohol percentage, but by its alcohol density. This beer was only 8 degrees, which made it about 3% alcohol. But this was still enough to numb Herman's guilt just a little, which came from many sources. Don't get too drunk, Klaus told him, with his arms crossed and a glare on his face. The Herman couldn't tell if he was glaring at him or at the beer. Not even you could get drunk off this, Herman replied. Klaus didn't reply back, and Herman grabbed the thick and round loaf of rye bread beside the plate. From this he tore off a large chunk, which he used to soak up the pickle juice as well as lots of onions. So are you going to show me the details of the case, he uttered. You might want to finish eating first, suggested Klaus. Trust me, Herman asserted, before forcing himself to both chew and swallow the bread. Eight months of Theresienstadt has given me the ability to eat through anything. Again, Klaus made no reply. He just picked up his attaché case and placed it on the table before taking out a folder. This he dropped in front of Herman, who opened it and found three full-size photographs of the dead men's faces each displaying varying degrees of horror. Even before his time at Theresienstadt, and before even becoming a policeman, Hermann had been inured to such sights, 
and to much worse ones. So he matter-of-factly put the images side by side on the desk in front of him and read the police reports underneath them in the folder. The causes of death were all different, Klaus let him know, despite knowing that Herman could read this himself. Herman could only surmise that Klaus was doing this to make himself relevant in an investigation that Herman could see was way over his head. A broken neck, Klaus went on, a strangulation, and a blunt blow to the back of the head. And that's just what killed them. There were also broken limbs and assorted internal injuries. What links them together, besides being found near synagogues, is that they were all found sitting up, either against a wall or a set of bushes. And as you can see, they all seemed frightened of something. Herman tuned Klaus out after this, and he concentrated on the facts in front of him. These began a little more than two weeks earlier, at the end of March. A Czech policeman named Petr Harubi, while making his rounds one night before dawn, found the body of Major Ernst Schiller sitting against an apartment building across the street from the Maisel Synagogue. At first he thought the Major was drunk, but when he tapped the man's shoulder with his billy club, the man fell to the ground, and the policeman quickly discovered he was dead. While Schiller's neck was broken, there were no signs of a struggle at the scene of the crime, nor had any witnesses been found who could remember seeing the Major and Yosefov that night, including seeing him sitting against the wall. The coroner estimated that Schiller died much earlier than when he was found, well before midnight. The last known person to see him alive was his wife Siglinda. On the night of his death, the two were about to see an opera at the Theatre of the Estates when a lieutenant arrived and led him away. Frau Schiller didn't know this lieutenant and was only able to provide a basic description of him and the exact whereabouts of the major from the time he left the theater to the time the policeman found his body were unknown. The second murder occurred three days later. A little after 10 o'clock at night, a Yosefov resident named Radoslav Harabal found the body of Captain Franz Gruber sitting against a set of shrubberies while walking his dog. This happened not far from the Moorish-looking synagogue that was once known as the Temple on Geist Alley, which some were now calling the Spanish Synagogue. The coroner estimated that Gruber's death occurred at around the same time he was discovered, or at least within a few hours of it. Unlike with Major Schiller, no one could account for any of Gruber's whereabouts that evening. He left duty at five o'clock and no one knows where he went afterward. He left no wife or any known girlfriend or lover and was said to be a loner without friends. Gruber died from a blow to the back of the head. Again, there were no signs of a struggle and there were no witnesses who could place the captain in the district at all that night. The body of the most recent murder victim, and the one who'd have the most relevance to me, was discovered nearly a week after Gruber's murder. Captain Max Fisher was found at nine o'clock in the morning by an SS lieutenant named Greta Krieg. She discovered him sitting outside a building not far from the Clausen Synagogue where she worked. 
She further indicated that she had often seen him in the synagogue during the past month. The last time was late in the afternoon on the day he died when she left work. Captain Fisher was strangled to death, and like with the others, there were no signs of a struggle at the scene of it. The coroner estimated that he died sometime during the night before, though it was likely somewhat later than the other two, that is, closer to midnight. There were also no witnesses to the crime before or after it happened apart from Lieutenant Krieg, and no one else was known to have seen the man from the time the lieutenant left the synagogue in the afternoon to the time she found him in the morning. Like Gruber, Fisher had no wife or girlfriend. What's more, all his known friends have said that he had been distant toward them in the past few months. Herman was a little surprised by all he had read, so he turned to Klaus and said, I can't believe these reports are accurate. In what way do you think they're not accurate, Klaus uttered with surprise of his own. There must have been some small piece of evidence left at scenes of such violent encounters, Herman explained. Some item the killer left, or some kind of disturbance of the area. I'm telling you there was no evidence found of a crime whatsoever at the scenes, Klaus insisted, with some defensiveness. At least none we noticed. But understand that no one in my office, including me, is a professional detective. We've also not allowed the Czech police or anyone else to investigate the scenes. I further don't believe that there were no witnesses at all, Herman went on. Three separate murders in the streets of Prague and no one saw a thing. I realize that Yosefov has far fewer people than it had before the war, but it is still in the center of the city. There are people living in it and passing through it all the time. No one has come forward, Klaus again insisted, again with defensiveness. There are only those witnesses mentioned in the reports. May I talk to them, Herman asked. Klaus gave this question some thought before answering, tactfully. We should start with the wife of the first victim, Herman argued. Frau Schiller, Klaus asked. Yes, her, Herman replied. She lives just a handful of blocks from the crime scene, Klaus noted, so I could show you that before we speak with her. Herman nodded. He further wiped his mouth with a napkin and rose to his feet while saying, Let's go. Klaus, though, didn't move. Instead, with a face full of skepticism, he grumbled, Where's all this sudden enthusiasm coming from? Herman thought about this. He thought about it for many seconds, as the question had caught him off guard. Was he really being enthusiastic, he asked himself. Perhaps he was, he realized and this confused him as much as it had confused Klaus. It even made him feel guilty. The source of this was that, for the first time since that August day a year earlier, grief was not foremost in his mind. Why was the next question he asked himself? Why was he enthused when only hours earlier he had intended to do nothing more than go through the motions or even hamper the investigation as much as he could? He answered aloud, and as honestly as he could. Maybe I enjoyed the thrill of the chase more than I imagined. 
Or maybe I just want to shake the killer's hand. Does it matter? Klaus answered by rising to his feet, and he started toward the door.